Hi, I'm Kosha. And I'm Shaylushi. And we're sisters and the co-hosts of the podcast, I Am Speaking with Shaylushi and Kosha. This podcast focuses on sharing and amplifying the voices of people who have felt othered. We've had the chance to hear so many amazing stories. And during season two, one of our running jokes together was that once VP Kamala Harris heard about this podcast, she was definitely going to call us to be a guest, but that we would have to turn her down because her story didn't fit with our theme for that season. But that joke was really the seed for this series. I am speaking with expert voices, an arm of our original and still ongoing podcast. We're excited to share with you the stories and expertise of people who are at the forefront of their fields. And Madam Vice President, with the launch of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, we are now ready for you to join us at any time. I think that was good, right? Hi, welcome listeners. We are back with another episode of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices. This time we are tapping one of Kosha's like earliest friends, like yeah. one of the friends that Coach has known the longest. Friend. Yes. Your earliest friend, uh, Scott Collins. And Scott Collins is a STEM teacher in the south suburbs of Chicago, southwest suburbs of Chicago. And I'm sure you, it's okay, STEM teacher, right? Like he teaches in the science department or he teaches math. No, Scott Collins is a, a whole nother level of STEM teacher. He's like a STEM evangelist something i don't know if it's an actual term or if he came up with it or you and he came up with it but you were talking about citizen scientists and i'm like that is the perfect term for what he is trying to create in his students is citizen scientists people who can look at things with the scientific method in the scientific viewpoint, because science is not just like biology, chemistry, right? It's it's how we process things, how we develop information and come to conclusions. Science is how we understand the world around us, which is why it rains when Zeus gets mad <laughs> is not science because there's that's there doesn't help us understand what is happening in the world. It's a story. And right when you don't have the ability to understand, whether you you literally cannot figure it out, then yeah, you come up with the story. But despite the fact we live in this technologically advanced world, there's so much science coming out, there's research being done on all kinds of things and all kinds of places. We have these amazing medicines, everything like that. There's still a, you know, and Scott talks about this, there's still a basic lack of understanding about how science works, what the scientific process is, like, how do you do science and how, how do you get from A to B to C to Z? Mm-hmm. And something, I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I will correct myself if I find out it's not, it, it wasn't him, but he said, just because you don't understand something doesn't mean aliens did it. <laughs> Right. Right. Like Stonehenge must be aliens. Uh, Crop circles must be aliens because we don't have the facts to be able to test that and to be able to come up with a conclusion. That doesn't mean that science is not working. The way that he is trying to mold these kids to be citizen scientists and, you know, 
and I'm not going to give away too much, but I'm just so proud. Like I, we met when we were two years old. So we've known each other now for 40 years going on wow. more than 40 years. And I'm just so freaking proud of him. I'm so proud of him. That's awesome. I think you're also a little jealous. A little bit and a little bit mad, which you will hear <laughs> a couple of yes. times. But you know, the other thing, and we didn't get to talk about this. He has this social justice. Um, now we did talk about the social justice piece, but I will say that right at the beginning of COVID, when we were like, we had doctors walking around in trash bags because they didn't have the PPE. Yeah. Scott and his department, they have several 3D printers and they 3D printed N95 masks for the local awesome. healthcare workers. That's and awesome. I'm like, that is Scott Collins right there. Yeah, that's awesome. So our listeners, please enjoy another episode of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, Scott Collins. Hey there, my name is Scott Collins. Uh, I am a high school uh, public school teacher in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, my pronouns are, are he, his, him, and I am speaking. Hi, Scotty. Welcome. Hi, thank you very much. I think we've learned that what we need to do is air the relationship between <laughs> the guest and any ho- and the hosts. Yes. Yeah. So it would be great if you and Kosha could kind of walk us through your relationship. Oh sure. my God. It's, it's a, it's a in depth. Like it goes, there's ups and ups and downs and okay, Kosha words, apart. full <laughs> sentences. <laughs> so we met in Totlot. Yeah. Which is our preschool in Streeter, Illinois. The acorn. So you were acorn. three. Acorn. Sorry. Acorn three. preschool. We were probably two or three. Yeah. So you've known each other for 40 years. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. We oh are- my God. Kosha and I are our longest lasting friends. Like both, both like, you know, I, I don't have any friends that I've known any longer than Kosha. This is true. This is a 40 year relationship. Both of us started at Acorn way earlier than quote other normal kids <laughs> or like the normal age because we both had older siblings who were going to school and we were like, we want to go to school too. And so our parents both, that's how they kind of bonded too, our parents. So we went through preschool together and that was for like three years until we went to kindergarten because we started so early. So we, and then um, you moved to Ottawa. Ottawa, which was about 15 miles down the road, but might as well have been across the world. Then, but we were still in Ingolane together for years, which was- Which is the community theater community theater and your mom was one of the directors very 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 involved then we moved away and we moved to the suburbs of Chicago which so we weren't even involved in the community theater and then we lost touch which people do and we saw each other this is wild on campus at Illinois Wesleyan University freshman orientation yeah wow we recognize each other immediately. It's a tiny school. Unbeknownst to either of us that we were, either of us were going there. Yeah. We hadn't talked in probably 10 years 
And uh, then, and we were both in the same program. So on this campus at this school, the programs are really um, exclusive. Like not 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 like you can't talk to people, but there you know if you're in the theater program, you really only do theater things. And if you're in the bio program, you only do bio things. And so we happen to be in the bio program together, the biology program. And totally, it was like left off where we had left it or like came back together. Where Picked we right had back up, yeah. yeah. That's so cool. It was, uh, it was like we were fast friends again. Yeah. And did everything together, studied all the time together. Um, we were, I was in Coach's dorm room, like more than I was in my own dorm. Seriously. He joined a fraternity and the pledge week, it's kind of, it can be hard on these, these guys, right? He was getting zero sleep. There's like parties and then they do their own thing and they're like, they're not sleeping. These guys are not sleeping. And Scott, and and that bio program is hardcore. So he's like, I need to get some sleep. Otherwise I'm going to like start failing all my classes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, don't bring me down because we're studying together. So, <laughs> so he's like, I need to come over. Can I come over? I'm going to say that you're helping me with like studying for bio. I'm like, well, I am studying for bio. So if you'd like to, join me so he came over and I had a snuggly like a stuffed animal that he put on his chest he started talking to me he laid down and then I turned and he is out and snoring and the snuggly is on his chest like raising and falling and like looking at him <laughs> in the face the, and he goes you saved my life like you literally saved my life several times that year yes yes, <laughs> yes. it was a safe space it was a safe space for me to catch up <laughs> Okay, so that is how we know each other. And we just, I mean, we are each other's oldest friends. I have no friends that I've known for 40 years. Yeah, it's crazy. That's a lot of years. I've never said that. Like, I've said like, oh, we've known each other for over 30 years before. I've never said 40 years out loud to anybody. So It's a lot. And it doesn't, <laughs> like, because like 2000 was like four years ago, right? <laughs> yeah, I wish. If 2000 was four years ago, then 1990 was seven years ago not even that much longer yeah it's not that long ago no. right uh-huh. yeah. yeah and what's amazing is like that's that's a very long time ago that's 32 <laughs> years ago oh, yeah mm-hmm. doesn't compute does not compute yeah so scotty i call i will call him scott so i've been calling him scotty for almost 40 years and uh, or 40 years now as we have established so his name is scott collins i don't think professionally he goes as scotty but i am positive that i'm going to i'm assuming he doesn't i will call him scotty and i'm sorry we have an expert who is really deeply steeped in both stem education and also how to how to make that alive for kids in a public school setting, which is really tough, as we know. There's so many limitations on what can happen in public school settings. And how do you bring something that, you know, over time, people in general and girls especially tend to shy away from because of their experiences or the public pressure or how they feel about themselves? And how do you keep them in the game? If you remember, in a previous season, we talked to my best friend, who is a female engineer at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, and you heard some of the challenges around being a woman in a STEM field. So now we're going to talk to a teacher whose part of the work is to help keep 
women, young girls in STEM fields. Yeah, of course. Let's talk about how you got into public education. I come from a family of teachers. I grew up, as, as we already spoke, uh, my mom taught me in, in, in Montessori preschool, and then she's an elementary school uh, music teacher, as is my aunt. Um, so I, I was kind of raised in the environment, and, and my family's always kind of been in public service. So um, as Kosha could speak to, I, I went to school, I went to Illinois Wesleyan to be a, a doctor. Um, I wanted to be a pediatrician, and it just wasn't in the cards. It was one of those things where, you know, we were getting to the point where people were taking the MCAT, and I, it was just starting to feel to me that it wasn't going to be kind of my field of study. So I was like, well, I know what teaching's like. I, I know what the lifestyle's like. Um, I knew if I stayed pre-med, I'd have six more years of of school and studying and school loans and all of that stuff. So I thought, well, why don't, why don't I go into the field that I know? And so public education was the field. A student taught where I still teach and I have taught for 18 years. It's funny that, so we're doing this now in, in, at the end of July. If we had done this when I think we were originally supposed to do it, which is a while ago and didn't work out. I, I, I left this school year with a little bit of a sense of pessimism kind of for my profession. Um, it's always been, like I said, I've done it for 18 years and um, it's always been a challenging profession, always been a very rewarding profession, but it's constantly changing. I can't really picture myself doing anything else. It's, it's uh, extremely rewarding. The, the connections that you're able to make with students um, when the light bulbs go on and when you find out that they've gone on to a field that, that you kind of help them spark an interest in. I, I like to travel with my students. I take them on a four-hour trip every summer. We're going to uh, Roatan, Honduras next week. I've been asking to go for years. Yes. Well, I, it, when I need another chaperone, um, coach is number one on the list. So, wow, there's a lot there to unpack, right? So you wanted to be pre-med. And what's funny here, or you went in pre-med, is that all three of us went in pre-med and none of us came out. Doctors. <laughs> I really want to be a doctor. I didn't want to do any of the things that it required to be a doctor. I just wanted to skip from college to being a doctor. And that's generally frowned upon. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But that's the really interesting thing is like, and I've talked to 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 Christine, uh, my spouse about this, like if I knew the path that I would ultimately be on, which is a public educator, either I wouldn't have gone to Wesleyan. There's no way I would have gone to Wesleyan. I wouldn't have paid all that money to, the reason I went to Wesleyan was because how they placed their students into med school. It was like a 90 whatever percent placement in med school. That's why I went there. And so I, I would have gone to ISU. I would have gone to U of I. I would have gone somewhere else. Um, there's no way I would have gone to Wesleyan. I'm still paying for my, paying my, my school loans. It's just weird how things work out that way. Yeah. Kosha and I both did the same. We're going to be doctors and just such, and, but you see why when you go there that like, this is why they place it so well, they do a really good job of getting you out of the program before you even apply. Oh yeah. If I remember correctly, if you were pre-med, you had to attend those MCAT sessions. Yes. Yeah. The MCAT sessions, you had to do the the committee sessions for interviews, for the essay, everything. It was very, it was very tightly controlled. It was, all, it, yeah, they had it dialed in. So you went into public education. Yeah. Did you have to do any additional training post-college? 
Yeah, so I did like a fast track certification program, which is two years. So you had, because you had all the subject matter. Yeah, yeah. So I left, I left Wesleyan with a bio degree and I think I had an English minor. I almost switched to teaching English. I was real close, but I thought about like grading all these essays. I don't want to do that. So (laughs) yeah, yeah. I had to do a two-year fast track and I ended up student teaching at Lamont High School and there was an opening at the end of student teaching and just jumped right in. So been there for 18 years. So, so as a new, as a new teacher, right? Like you're a new teacher, you're trying to, you know, learn the ropes. You're trying to figure out what's going on. Were you like, okay, I just have to keep my head down. Or did you start seeing scarcities and needs? And because I will say Lamont is also an affluent suburb of Chicago. So you're not in the inner city, right? You're not in, in places where teachers don't have resources and things like that. I mean, teachers don't have enough resources across the board, but this Lamont High School has more resources than- We're doing fine, yeah. Thank you, thank you. When did that start happening? Where you're like, we need to do science education better. While I wanted, also wanted my students to obviously develop a love for science and learn a lot about it. I also wanted them to be able to appreciate what they had. Early on, I saw that these kids are, are very privileged to be in this in this place with computers, with computer labs, with lab material. We had a budget. Our science budget was crazy. It's not as big as it was then, um, surprisingly. Part of my mission was always to help these students to understand how good they have it. I had really good friends who worked in CPS, and I would go visit their schools. CPS being Chicago Public Schools. Yes, Chicago Public Schools. And you know, the bells didn't work and they had to walk through metal detectors and they had clear backpacks and all of these things that like my students have no concept of. And so I would try to bring elements of that back just anecdotally. We weren't able to like take field trips down there or anything like that, but I would, I would have loved to expose them to things like that. But, you know, I, I continue to try to do that by bringing the outside of the classroom in, right? I, I try to bring in um, other voices and I try to get them out too. Like that's why we're going to all these different different places. So, I, I, a pillar of of what I've tried to do at Lamont is, like I said, not just hopefully get them interested in science, but to give them an appreciation of like what it is that they are, they're living in this little bubble that is Lamont High School in, in Lamont, Illinois, and maybe get them to realize a little bit that there's a lot out there that isn't exactly like what we see every day, right? Not everyone's experience is, is what ours is. That's, that's so cool to have a teacher who's like, there's actually a social justice approach to the work I'm doing, which is not just to facts and understanding theories and things like that, but also to understand the larger context in which education happens and which the world happens. Like what so much of the challenge we have now is everyone, both sides of the political spectrum, at least to talk about that way, think, you know what? my experience is the right experience or my experiences should dictate the rest of the world's experience. And I think it's, you know, both on the side of people who maybe have not had things or have lived in places where the politics are a little bit more conservative, but it's also on the side of people who have a lot of things and the politics are more progressive and more, you know, a little bit more quote unquote liberal. And so to bring that social justice piece in, Like, I wish more teachers thought about their job as 
my job is not just to teach you English or math or science, but to, to help you get a worldly education about how the world works and how like your role in the world. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. And you referenced earlier that you've been able to take some of your students on these international trips. Where did that idea come from? You know, I've always wanted to do it. When I was in high school, I took one of those trips. Like I went, we took a tour to um, London and Paris. It was just like a sightseeing tour, right? It wasn't that educational. You got to see really cool things. We saw the Eiffel Tower and Big Ben and all that. But I, I remember those things so vividly and it really had an impact on me. And, and it was something that I'd always want, wanted to kind of pay forward when it came to my profession. And I wanted it to be more than just sightseeing. Like I wanted to get them out. I wanted them to be able to be citizen scientists and be able to kind of do some kind of service project that not only would expose them to places that aren't, you know, the Midwest, but also, you know, challenges that are in those places as well, right? We've been to, we went to Yellowstone. We've been there a couple of times. We've been to Maui. We've been to Alaska. We're going to go to Roatan. I want to take kids to Galapagos. I want to take them to Iceland. I want to. I will be going to the Galapagos with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Galapagos is, is bucket list for sure for me. Shalushi, your kids, if they want to go next year. With oh my me, God. Really? Yes. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. 100%. They can go with me. And Batsy, when she's older, she can come too. That's awesome. Like I said, we, we work with national park scientists and we, we did actual field research and we were on the floor of Lamar Valley and in, um, in Yellowstone and taking fecal samples. And like, we're finding these collared bison, like we climbed a mountain to find a prawn. It was just this incredible experiences that I'm humbled to say has changed the kind of the trajectory of some kids' lives. Like I had a student who was going to go to medical school in Alabama and we went to Yellowstone and she's like, I'm, I'm going to Montana state and I'm going to be a, a parks a National Park Service researcher. Wow. Um, and that's what she's doing. That is amazing. Just to have that ability to open kids' eyes. Like we we, we touched a glacier this past summer. Like last summer, we, we, we went to Alaska. Well, last summer is probably the last time you could do that. Yeah, right? I was like, we got to get up here while these <laughs> things are still around. Um, Lex, is, Lex would lose his mind Lex to do this stuff. Mind. So my younger kid, who's the same age as as, as your older kid, is on the spectrum. Like he wants to go to IMSA. He loves all this stuff. But the idea of actually doing research, yeah, he would lose his mind. Yeah. What's his passion? Knowing things. Yeah. That's his passion. I would say generally, like overall, his passion is math, but it's definitely expanded to I want to know things. I want to understand things. Being on the spectrum, he goes through stages of what he is really, really delving into pick a topic and he gets interested and that's it. I think that Scott's approach to is putting things in context. It sounds like what you, what you do on some of these trips is, okay, this is the fact, right? These are the science, but this is how the science works. And I think that that like just teaching the scientific method, when we're talking oh about gosh, yeah. science literacy and how far gone science literacy in the, is in this country, you have like what you're doing is taking it back to the basics yeah right like this is how you collect data data is a plural word like yeah. even just stuff like that yeah yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. like so the next generation science standards ngss are three-dimensional right 
one of them focuses on the material. You know, the mitochondria are responsible for making ATP in the cell, right? So the, so like the, the content. Another one are these cross-cutting concepts, like being able to look for patterns, like being able to, to look at things from really close up and really far away, like the scale of things. And then the third element is um, the science and engineering practices, being able to analyze data, being able to, to, to develop a model, uh, an infographic to try to explain a process. If you noticed, only 33% of that is the content, right? So when we went to school, it was like, you memorize the content. You need to know the content. It's all content. Now, for, for states who are doing the national, next generation science standards, that the content is 30%. Most of it is getting kids to be able to think like scientists. Wow. That's what, you know, primarily my goal as a science teacher is not to get kids to, to memorize what, you know, how, how DNA replication works. It's to get them to be able to figure out why that's important in the whole picture of things. If a kid is going to go into genetics, they're going to learn how DNA replication works in college. You know, they'll get it then. They don't necessarily have to memorize all the facts now, but they do need to understand how, what it looks like if I need to draw a model to explain this thing or what kind of scale I would use if I wanted to make a graph to explain something. Or what, where the tick marks go, what goes in the X, what goes in the Y, what's the independent, dependent variable, what kind of data can I gather? These are the things that science education needs to be focusing on now, not rote memorization of stuff that completely like scares kids off. And I think there's too many teachers who are still doing that. I think Illinois is doing a pretty good job of um, executing these next generation science standards. But unfortunately, there's a lot of places in the country that aren't doing that. And so it's just like, you know, we're failing our kids when it comes to making better scientists. Who develops the next generation science standards? It was a group of teachers. Yeah, it was a group of teachers that did it um, from all over the country. And one, uh, Carol Baker, she, she was the department chair at Eisenhower uh, in a high school in Blue Island. She's been a huge mentor for um, a lot of this area's school teachers who have tried to kind of roll this out within the next, the previous, it's all, it's been in the last like six, seven, eight years, really that it's taken hold and, and teachers, more importantly, teachers have, they trust it enough because they know it's important. We're, we're, we're seeing that it's really, really important um, and they're willing to execute it in that way. And, uh, kind of an arm of that is this concept of storylining. And I know I'm kind of running around, but th this is, this is, um, is pertinent to this part. So we've started storylining at, at Lamont high school. And I, I was department chair for four years and I hated it. So I quit, but, um, I, I brought in storylining, uh, to our curriculum. And the idea of storylining is you find a phenomenon. So instead of like, if you open up a textbook and chapter one is cells, and chapter two is metabolism and chapter three is photosynthesis. Now chapter one is Africa. Chapter two is melanin and skin color. Chapter three is like how to run a marathon. And so you teach these concepts within the frame of a phenomenon. So they learn it because they need to know it for the next part of the story, not because it's the next chapter in the story. I wrote a, a unit on skin color for this past spring and we learned about evolution through the lens of why we have different color skin 
And the kids were just like, you know, they don't care about evolution as much, but they do care that they are, they do wonder why we have different colors of skin. And so you start to realize that, all right, so if, if it looked like me and I lived on the, on the equator, why wouldn't that work out? Why wouldn't I survive very long? But you put someone like me in Europe, where my ancestors grew up, and you see that things we can evolve, like we can survive a little bit better. Our offspring aren't going to have uh, vitamin D deficiencies and all these things. So, and again, the the social justice part comes in there because you're like, no, it is not that. Yeah, yeah. Darker skin is because like we, there's a ton of colorism. I know all over the world, but like for example, in India. There is like darker skin is bad. Mm -hmm. White skin is good, right? Fair skin is good. Is that when you see a darker skin person somewhere in their ancestry, right? During their evolution, that was advantageous. It's actually good. Yeah. Like that is a brilliant way of bringing in social justice. Can I tell you how I learned the the idea of skin color in your culture? It was through one of my tennis players. So I coached tennis for like 15 years. And he is of Pakistani descent. He's, he was always slathering up sunblock. I'm like, Shabar, dude, like, you're, you're going to be fine. fine. Like, you're, you're not going to burn. Like, you're going to be good. He's like, no, dude, my mom will kill me. He's like, if I come home and I'm dark, my mom will kill me. Oh, my like, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, no idea. No idea about that. I came back from Mexico this summer. And my mom was like, why are you so tan? It's still like baked into their minds. Yeah, yeah. No right. Idea. And and I think that's it's really interesting how you can layer in those lessons about again social justice. Yes, this is evolution. People who lived here two thousand years ago, it makes sense to have you know a pigment in your skin that could absorb sunlight and and make you not burn. Yeah. But then to layer in like, and then why would why would Indians or generally the world prefer you know preferentially treat people with light skin well that's about colonialism that's about racism that's right and then you get to have that conversation yeah and that to me like really connects with something you said earlier around raising citizens scientists you know it's been a challenge for us for years and years decades right that scientists live in their ivory towers and they talk to each other and they talk about p-values and they whatever they reference all of their scientific jargon and most people don't understand what that means and the flip side of that is that scientists can't talk to people Mm -hmm. they can't talk to you know general the general population you know the final piece of it is that scientists are generally taught to be neutral that's part of your training as a scientist is just to go, you know what? I don't have a preference for the outcome. I have to stay neutral. But then they extend that into the social world. And that doesn't work because there is actually whatever is science backs, that is a policy the country needs to go in or the world needs to go in. And yet scientists have generally over time stayed quiet to be like, well, you know, our job is not to be advocates. So I love this idea of teaching the storyline because the storyline isn't, well, one, it's holistic, right? You don't teach, you don't teach, you know, the cell cycle devoid of everything else. You teach the cell cycle in context of human bodies. Cancer. 
cancer, healthcare, all of that stuff you get to bring in. And then it trains these younger, you know, younger scientists to talk about science in the context of, of the world, yeah. not just, let me tell you about p-values. We figured out, this is brilliant. I thought it wasn't my idea, so I can't take credit, but. You're the only one here. <laughs> we decided to teach, we decided to treat, teach protein synthesis, right? How DNA determines what proteins are made. We decided to teach protein th- synthesis through the lens of RNA vaccines. And so, so we taught kids how RNA vaccines work, but we did it with the purpose of showing how DNA goes from RNA, proteins go from DNA to RNA to protein. And that's actually, you're not, it's not changing your DNA, right? Because where I teach is like this, it's like this island. Do you remember the New York Times after, uh, after the 2020 election put out where, who voted for whom? And it was like a heat map of like red and blue. Vermont is like this bastion of like this, this, this red island in the middle of the suburbs. Yes, it's weird. Oh, I thought you were going to say something else. Because I do know that like very, very affluent areas, for example, in Orange County, are very, very low vaccine uptake. So in those affluent areas where you can get the health care and you can be an island, people go all like off the grid when it comes to like vaccine uptake. That's what I thought you were going to say. No, this was just, this is just political affiliation. So you, you had to tread lightly a little bit, but I didn't mince, mince words. Like we, we taught how these vaccines work. We taught, and, and once these kids, so the whole, all, every freshman at Lamar High School knows how mRNA vaccines work and how it doesn't change your DNA and how it is safe. And I was just putting in the precursor for a virus. It's not actually putting the virus in you. And that's how storylines go. And, and, you, and you're t- so they learned how to go from DNA to protein in something that was pertinent, in something that was important, in something that was contextual to kind of our world now. Instead of when we were in school, it was like mm-hmm. you just have to learn the that sequence and how it works in the nucleus and moves out to ribosomes, yada, yada, yada. So I saw, I saw this awesome text or tweet. What did I learn in organic chemistry? Carbon, mo- like all of this stuff. No, 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 no. How to draw a hexagon. Yes. 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 (laughs) I had a history teacher that was like, we're not talking about facts. There will never be a fact on a test or a date. It's about how do we think about history? And so we would do things like we would do debates and the debate would be what was more impactful to the course of the world, the, um, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand or yeah. Hitler's invasion of Poland or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so honestly, like in debate, you could debate any side and then people would go back and forth. And so it was like, how can we contextualize these things? And that it has been taught in, let's say English classes, history classes, science classes have, it has taken longer to get this storylining idea yeah. Would you agree with that? Like, oh, when, sure. when did this start kind of like taking some purchase? So it's been within the last few years for real. For me, with big history, I started seeing the mechanisms of it then. And it's one of my mentors who's a writer with big history. Um, your story about um, your teacher reminded me, if you ask him, if you ask 
this gentleman why he's a professor of, of, of education at University of Michigan. If you ask him why he went into teaching, he'll tell you because Stalin took over such and such a territory in such and such a year. And you're like, what are you talking about, dude? I just, and then, but then, like, that's why his family came over. That's why this, that, that started this kind of domino effect of, um, of, of his family here. So, so you look back at the causality of things in this class, Big History, that I teach. The whole purpose of that is it teaches you how all of this got to be the way it is. That's the premise of the class. It seems very simple. Okay, how did this get to be? And that's it. That's the syllabus. And so let's let's start knocking out step one, 13.82 billion years ago. There's this huge explosion. And then you go from there. And you just start building and building and building and building. Like So we talked about how our classes at Wesleyan were very like siloed. Like you were this and there were some people were this and some people were this. But with big history, and I think what, what educators are, are finding out is that you know, things stick, the myelination works better if you have a point of reference in all of these different places. So with big history, you build on cosmology and, and physics builds on the cosmology, astrophysics, right? And then geology builds on top of that and biology builds on, well, chemistry builds on that and then biology, right? And so all of these things have a stake in the story and it's how they all fit together, which Lex would love that. Like, how does how does it work? Oh, yeah. Like, how did all of this get to be the way it is? This is how. This is the story. Sit back and we'll talk about it. And so, it was a TED talk that I saw on big history uh, historian called David Christian put out a TED talk, and it was like the history of the world in eighteen minutes. I've seen that. I've seen that. I think you sent it to me when you were talking about big. History. Yeah, that 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 TED talk literally changed my life. Like, uh, that's not understating it being able to see the whole the whole picture there and so then i started to realize that you know you give things context like we can in, in, and then that translated to storylining in biology give things concept give them a frame onto which you can hang you know your knowledge and start kind of putting pins in and collecting and, and connecting things and so i hear students um, you know, they're bringing up big history stuff in their, his, in their, in their like other classes, their psychology class, you know, and so that's when you, you start to realize that it's starting to stick and it's starting to mean something when they're actually arguing for it in another class. No, and Scott, you're absolutely right that like most teaching is like, well, this is chemistry and this is physics and this is biology, but physics is chemistry is biology is mathematics. They're all the same. Right. I mean, they layer on each other. Like you said, they build on each other. You can't understand physics unless you understand math and you can't understand bio unless you understand chemistry, which is based on physics. Scotty and I graduated high school in 1998 and in high school, they had just started right, right around when I graduated, maybe a couple of years before a course called humanities. And it was like two and a half hours. So it took up essentially three course periods and it was taught by a history teacher, an English teacher and a science teacher. It was just shocking to, that you would put those three together and it, it took all of this red tape and they had to do, you know, a pilot program and all this stuff. It's so lovely to see that it's coming kind of, it, it's more mainstream now. So I don't know if you know this, but I went to IMSA for most of my high school career. And when I was there, they did problem-based learning, PBL. 
instead of being like, now we're gonna talk about physics, it was like, here's a problem. How do we solve the problem? How do we figure out what's going on? And it would bring in all of this stuff. One, I was curious whether that was being trend, like whether the lessons of the guinea pig lab that I was in actually got out to the public schools. And secondly, like, what do you see as the similarities between a problem-based learning approach and, and something like storylining? Yeah, I, I think that, I think PBLs and storylining, I mean, they could very well be the same thing, um, maybe just under a different title. We were, we were talking about metabolism and things. And so the problem was, why did this woman run the Chicago Marathon and collapse at the very end? And so that was the phenomenon around which we learned how cellular mechanisms work. And so I think that they were, Insta was, was doing it then. Maybe just was called something else. Like storylining and phenomenon-based learning seems to be like, you know, pretty closely related to that, I would, I would, I would assume. It's just the importance of giving something context. Yeah. And like I said, you learn something because you need to know it for the next part of the story not because it's just next in the book, right? So we, we have an Africa unit and um, we're talking about how like certain species are more important than the others and why are all the willoughbys dying out? And so you have to, so then we start talking about their food source. And when we start talking about that, then you start learning about photosynthesis, not because it's just next, but because you need to know about how photosynthesis works to help their food source to survive. So like it kind of plugs in these different places and just be, it's a little bit more pertinent than, um, all right, kids, next, we're going to learn about photosynthesis. That's fantastic, right? Because it really connects all of these natural phenomenon and, and ecology and geology and, and geography and like, you know, all biology and all these things together. But also, you know, we are learning as, as time goes on that humans learn best through stories. We're a story-based species. That's why fairy tales exist. And that's why, you know, all of this, that's why we love podcasts, truthfully, because we want to hear stories because that means something to us. And so the stuff gets stickier if it's based in a story, right? If I can tell myself, oh, well, this thing happened 50 million years ago, it was like this. And then it was like this. And you can walk yourself through a story the information's a lot stickier than if you learn it like first there was a big bang and this thing happened and that thing happened. And then we're going to talk about physics and then we're going to go back here and right. Yeah. That's how we frame in big history is a grand narrative. There's a grand narrative that's 13.8 billion years long and, and we work our way through it. Like you sit and you just tell a long story. So let's dig into that a little bit. Cause that sounds amazing and fantastic. And that's kosher. That's where you we were going. I'm so fascinated by this. And Scott reached out to me. and was like, Hey, I'm doing this. I thought you'd be interested. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, I, like, I should go back and see <laughs> it's, I know. I was you like, can. can I be in your class? Um, I know Bill Gates is involved. Um, he's watching. Us. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere. I ha I've gotten my vaccine. I've been double dosed and boosted. He'd be happy to hear that. <laughs> Where did big history come from? Like, who, I, was it out of Bill Gates's brain or was it the Gates Foundation? And like, how did it, how did you come to it? So um, David Christian is a, is a Russian historian who teaches in Australia. And he came up with the idea of big history. 
um, at Macquarie University in Australia. And, you know, instead of like watching true crime shows or listening to podcasts, Bill Gates, when he's on the on the treadmill, watches watches college courses. That's what he does. There's a website called The Great Courses and Big History was on The Great Courses. And so he was watching it on his treadmill and he thought, wow, this is the best class I've ever taken. This should be in all high schools. So he called up David Christian and David thought he was being pranked, but no, it's Bill Gates. Seriously, I was going to be like, uh-huh, Billy, right? Like William. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've had David Christian talk to my classes. I, I, um, the time difference was really hard, but we found a way to where it was super early there and it was late, late in the afternoon for my kids. And he told the story to my students and um, it was really interesting to hear it straight from him. But um, Gates kind of put the, the monetary backing behind turning this college course into a free online curriculum that anyone can take at any time. And so one of his major passions is open educational resources, right? creating online classes that are free for anyone and that can be rolled out in a suburban, you know, an affluent Western suburb of Chicago or in Southern California where they have very little, very little technology. So first was big history. And then since they've developed a world history class and they've developed a post-slavery class, they've developed like, so if you look at OER, not, I think it's open educational resources, this is kind of bloomed from his idea of let's make this really cool class and make it free for everyone. And now he has, we've developed this all kinds of these different courses. They're all free. They're all online in perpetuity and they can be used by anybody. That is awesome. But the draw for me to this course was simply how it brought everything together. Right. And how it helped you to realize like, you know, that all of this is interconnected. Right. And the causality of, you know, if it wasn't for that asteroid 65 million years ago, we wouldn't be here, right? So it's, it's this big, the, it answers, asks and answers, the, it tries to answer the big questions, you know, that we've always had. Um, and so that was the draw. And I kind of, I brought it in and started teaching it. Uh, it was the second year. They, they had piloted it the year before with a group of eight teachers on the West Coast. And then I was one of the first like 12 teachers in the world to teach it. Oh, um, and, uh, and now they're, now it's in like every school in Nevada. It's in a ton of, it's all over the world now. And I'm on the board uh, of teacher leaders there still. And so we go out and meet there once a year. And it's just, it's, it's been a really cool ride. And it's been really meaningful because it's, I think it's such a cool class and there's so many more kids taking oh my gosh. it. Now. That's, I mean, that's so exciting. Like I like went and looked at it while you were talking and I was like, I want to take those classes. I know. Yeah. I know. They're great. You should, you should, there are some, there's, there's units on slavery in the, the world history course where they go back to the ports where they shipped slaves from Africa and they interview people from those places and it's, it's, I mean, you just start crying. Like they'll go into these places where they were keep holding these holding pens for the slaves. And, and, but they, they make sure to bring in like people that don't all just look like me, right? That they have so many speakers in these courses of so many different backgrounds and different perspectives. 
and they bring in graphic novels, right? So they, they tell the story a different way because you know kids love graphic novels. Yeah, your entire philosophy, if I could sum up, I was like, <laughs> please say, please say that you're like pausing that that's his philosophy and be like, let me tell you how what your teaching philosophy is. It seems to me, I'll say, um, that part of your philosophy is. See, now I'm hedging. Um, no, go for it. Jump is, in is really bringing education where your kids are and not just shoving round pegs and square holes, right? Like what do these, what children, what do, I mean, literal children need, they are children. What do these kids need and how can I bring it to them? hundred percent. Versus this is how it's always been done. Open your books to page 234 or whatever and learn about the Krebs cycle yeah, which yeah, I know yeah. the name of the Krebs cycle but I couldn't tell you what it was yes. right now it's interesting that you say that it's exactly what we're trying to do every year like we we developed that Africa unit we didn't develop it but we we put our own spin on it and I think we made it better but you would be I thought that the kids would love learning about Africa I thought that high school kids would love something framed in Africa they don't care about Africa they don't they like I grew up like watching the National Geographic channel right and like they don't know the difference between a water buffalo and a wildebeest they don't like they don't know what a cheetah looks like and and they don't so we we threw it out we we're not doing the Africa storyline anymore um I did they love the skin color one we did one on birds the year before. They don't, they don't care about birds. So we're trying to meet them like yeah. where they are. Cancer, we do cancer every year yeah. when it, when we do the cell cycle and they're in it. Like, cause everybody knows what that, you know, knows what that is. You know what you could do is you could do a whole segment on this YouTube. Oh yeah. I was going to say you, what you could do is say, why, why can someone in China hack your facebook account social media online presence yeah because like that is when i think about my children that is they're obsessed with that and i like to remind them all the time repeatedly kosha knows what i'm going to say one of the co-founders of youtube was one year ahead of me in high school i know so i keeping like it's only that old i know right i know so he 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 donated like a million bucks to IMSA and they made this huge makerspace. And we've toured that. We we made a really awesome stem line based on what they did with that money. It's a complete side note. So something that you do have done, like you, okay, you're talking about big history. You're talking about putting things in context. You're talking about bringing kids outside the classroom. But another thing that you have focused on over your 18 year career thus far is bringing the outside into the classroom. Um, and this is, but you were zooming people in before zoom was actually a verb or a noun, right? Like before the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Talk about that a little bit and the red tape that it took and where did that come from? I there's, there was very little kind of oversight for that. I, I think I've been at Lamont long enough to where like administration trust Trusts kind you, of, right you know, what I do in the classroom and. Or when you were, when you were the chair, you're like, I'm just doing it. And I, I approve of it myself. So yes, yes exactly. <laughs> sign off on this one. 
I, I, I won't say that they've all been home runs because you have, like I said, you have to find the people that can communicate it. But the ones that have been have just been so impactful. I can think of uh, one of my buddies from high school who who's going to cure cancer like he's going to do it. He's um, he's got his own lab now out in Oregon. Terry Medler. He's uh, just a brilliant, brilliant scientist. And he's he's working on you know, the immune response to cancer and how we can utilize our immune cells to fight cancer. And he was, when you get those people who can distill something like that down and granted this was to an AP bio class. So he still was, was getting after it with some content, but he was able to, and I, I would jump in every once in a while and ask kind of the dumb question that maybe the kids didn't want to ask out loud. Yeah. And so then he would kind of drill in a little bit more on something. And so you have to know kind of those flexion points when you can like, all right, this might not be so clear. Let's, let's get him to dig in a little bit more on something. Um, but when, when you have an experience like that and you have students come away with it, like, wow, that was like, that was something. And they're, and they're continuing to ask questions it, you, you realize how important you know, experiences like that are to kids who, who care about it. And like, even ones that don't, like we saw that it, it, they were listening, you know, they were attentive. And it's something that I think is important. Um, it's something that um, I don't think it happens enough in, in classes, but I, I'm, I'm beating the drum on it. And I have been for years, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about, give me a couple of, and obviously don't give names, but give a couple examples of like, where you're like, I thought this was going to work. I thought this person was going to blow my kids away and it kind of fell flat. Like, and what were the similarities of those? Like, what were the connecting threads? So for my big history class, we were talking about the, um, the origins of language, collective learning and how, what really sets us apart. If you, if you think about the humans as a species, what truly sets us apart more than anything else, more than opposable thumbs is our ability to communicate, right? And, and we, we build up this collective learning and we have a history and we can share what works and what doesn't. And so we were talking about like the first written language, all right? So you can tell stories, but like you have to keep a ledger of something. You have to be able to like, this person owes me this much money because I did this particular service. You have to have a way to, to record these things. Document everything. We still talk about that. <laughs> you have to, you must. Yes. I brought in a, like a, like a linguistics expert who is an expert on hieroglyphs and like i was like this is gonna be great like they're gonna like they're gonna be in it and he he's one of those that is just so smart that he had a really hard time you know like michael jordan is not a good basketball coach like he he's not a good basketball coach because you just do it like you just just yeah, just just score thirty points. You put the ball in the whole thing, and that wins yeah. six championships. It's easy. And we've all had those teachers, right? Like I remember having a teacher in high school where I came out of that class going, like, she's really good at math, but she is a terrible teacher. And she just thought, like, I'm really good at math, so I should be. A I'm teacher. sure she's brilliant. I'm sure she's brilliant. This this dude was brilliant as well, but he just couldn't present it in a way that was number one engaging and and number two like clear to where the kids were and I and I, I literally like I hit end and I was like I'm sorry <laughs> I'm sorry about that <laughs> oh 
bit like and the kids appreciated it. They were good. Like they were good. They were they were respectful and all of it, but it was like it got to the point where it was like, all right, we need to cut this one a little short. Well, not everyone's a winner. Yes, indeed. We've had we've had more more good than bad, but that again it's a scientific method. You're not gonna do that one again. I learned. learned. I I collected some data points. We will pivot and not do that again. So, you know, it's interesting because we we've been doing this podcast for a little over a year. And part of part of it is like I started, we started booking people who are our friends. I mean, we clearly (laughs) still are booking our friends, but but like we're like, hey, you want to talk about your experience? We did first generation Americans. Uh, So we're like, hey, friend from, you know, down the street and cousin and friend from high school and stuff like that. Um, and now we're starting to get people who are not our friends, you know, for they, they hear about our podcast or I reach out to, I, and I have some like, you know, something to back it up with. How did you start getting your, your guest speakers and how has that changed and grown? It's still like my network is still my friends. I will talk about bats. Do you want me to talk about bats? Sonar. Also vampire bats are, they have um, saliva that's anti-clotting. Get you in. (laughs) You don't need to talk to Scott about bats. All right. (laughs) You need to talk to Scott. He took that class with me. (laughs) Yes, we did. I'm trying to put it in context to where I can come in and be a speaker. Yes. No, we'll get you in. We'll get you in. It might be like a niche lesson, but we can do bats. <laughs> no, but I, if you can help me develop a storyline that centers around bats, <laughs> we can figure it out. Like, basically, the storyline is why Dracula does not exist. Storyline is why I have a friend who won't leave me alone. <laughs> and so we're just going to have her come in. And oh talk. my God. This. This is a lesson where we get her off my back. The kosher storyline. <laughs> yeah, this is this is how you stop annoying people. <laughs> Sometimes you just give them what they need and they leave yes. you alone. It's short-term pain for long-term gain. Right, 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 right. This is for me. <laughs> this is for, for me, me guys. <laughs> it's going to be another one where we end. You end it and be like, thank you, guys. You know what's going to happen, actually? Scott's going to like hit the end button and then he'll be like, I don't know, we hit a power outage. We're screwed. <laughs> yes. Uh, we lost internet yes. connectivity. Sorry. Technology, yeah, yeah. you love it. I know, right? Right. No, but like it, it's it's basically been oh, like oh, that'd be cool if that person would talk about it. Like for here's here's an example. So I'm teaching forensics in the fall, um, and I've reached out to Adam because uh, he worked on Criminal Minds forever, and so my my best friend Adam works out. He's a production design and an art designer in in Hollywood and um. So I was like, you, you need to talk about crime scenes because like, he's done so much research on what a crime scene would look like and what, you know, all these things would look like. I, ta- I reached out to Tormund. And uh, when, we, when we talked about time, we're going to talk about time of death. So um, our friend, he's now, uh, um, he owns his own um, uh, funeral home. So he's, he's, he embalms and does the whole thing. Um, and so it's things like that where where I just think about like Larry Kosiolik, like that dude literally knows more about COVID than anybody in the world. Uh, he's at Northwestern and, um, you know, he's, he's addressed various things. So it's just kind of, you know, kind of organically 
um, something that if I if I seen interest, especially if students are like really glomming on something, I'm like, oh, hey, I know somebody. Would you be interested in hearing? Like, yeah, let's do it. You actually ask them again, bringing it where they right. Yeah. Where they want Participatory to learning is a huge thing, right? If you are engaged in your own education, then you are you're much more likely to actually give a shit and and also retain the knowledge and carry it however far you want to carry and i think you know something you said earlier scott which is like yeah everyone paid attention not everyone decided to change their life based on something that we did but we don't need people we don't need everyone to go who goes through a science class to become a scientist what we need is for everyone to understand how science works yeah absolutely and, and what it and like what it actually looks like like it's not like like white coats and beakers and buns and beakers burners, with right? the yeah with smoke coming out of them like it's actually friends like my buddy terry who grew up in a tiny town outside of ottawa um oh, outside which of tiny, tiny town, town is outside of ottawa <laughs> So, so, so it, it should be pronounced Marseille, but it's Marseille. Yes, Marseille. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah Marseille. Right. Yeah. So, so of course it's in Illinois, Marseille. He grew up in this tiny little town. And it, so as much as it's about the content, it's, it's also about a gay kid from Marseille, Illinois, can run his own cancer lab and have a, a commercial on the Super Bowl for one of his drugs. Like, that for me was like just as important as the content of how we're getting the the immune response to help That's fight so cancer. Cool. But you could also then go backwards and go look at this commercial on the Super Bowl, which is where 14, 15 year olds can relate and then go backwards to talk about the cancer response. Yeah, or the I played immune it for response them. to yeah, the cancer. Absolutely. Yeah, I played the the commercial for him. I'm like, you want to know about this truck? Here's my boy. Yeah, that made it. that's so cool. That's amazing. That's, that's really really cool. Yeah. Oh. I know you were impressive, but I'm still I'm like very I'm I'm blown away by how thoughtful and deliberate your approach to teaching your kids are, is. I appreciate that. High school kids are are so impressionable, and you know, for good and bad this little things that you don't even realize that that really makes an impression on them like and it's the 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 Maya Angelou quote is not what you teach them it's what they how you treated them or how you made them feel right like there's so much of that in teaching that like I I am not um conceited enough to think that my kids really give that much of a shit about the Krebs cycle but especially during a pandemic it's like you know, it, it's, you're teaching them to be a student, right? You're teaching them to, to have these executive functioning skills of organization. And how, how do you manage a calendar? Like, how do you, how do you email your teachers? Like, what should you even say? Like, what do you do when you're absent? So there's so much more about teaching than just, you know, the, the, the bullet points that we're having and write down in their notebook. It's like, you know, you have to realize that you're teaching like a human being and they have off days and they have come in with a whole bunch of baggage and it's like, you, you got to deal with that too. So it's while, while I want them to leave my classroom loving science, I also want them to leave my classroom feeling good about the environment, about themselves, about, you know, their day, you know, so it's, it's a lot more than just, you know, what we went to school for. 
Yeah. So I would love if you could, as we sort of head toward the end of our interview, to talk it's a already, little bit. Scotty, it's already 20 till nine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it is. we've been talking yeah. for almost an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. 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 So talk a little. I would love it if you could share a little bit about your approach to teaching in general. Right. So you you hit on it a little bit and we started with specifics and now we're coming to the general. But like, how do you approach teaching? What do you like? What are, what are your standards for like what a good teacher looks like? Um, and, you know, you mentioned a little bit like the whole student approach, like it's not just learn the material and then go on your way. And that's all I care about. It's understanding some students didn't have breakfast. Yeah, right. Or yeah. some students like both of their parents are sick with COVID and they're trying to hold down the house or whatever it is. Right. There's so many. And I think as a, well, I won't say as a society, um, but certain, certain areas of the country have gotten much better at recognizing that education happens when the, within the context of a child, a student's whole life. So can you talk a little bit about how you, again, you know, you talked about raising teaching citizen science, citizen scientists, but this is also, this is whole child education. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So I've had several student teachers, like in my 18 years, right. And, and you, so your student teacher comes in and, um, you're kind of tasked with helping them cut their teeth in the classroom. I was going to say like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, yeah. they're going to change the world, yeah. they're going to teach, they're going to make every kid a scientist, right? Yes, of course. They're all going to leave here being biologists. Right, right, right. It's hard. It's really kind of hard to quantify and it's hard to explain like, but when those student teachers are in there, there's so much of it that is like, you just see it. Like, it's like the, the, what's the dictionary definition of pornography? Like, you just know it when you see it. Yep. <laughs> it's not the dictionary definition. It's the legal, de- it's like, like the political legal definition. Yeah. Yes. yeah. You, you know There's a whole, ca- the Supreme Court case that basically the argument for what pornography was, well, I can't tell you what it is, but I know, I, I know it when I see it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, it's, it's kind of, so I shouldn't compare student teaching to pornography, but <laughs> <laughs> you you know you know uh, like you know a good teacher almost immediately when you walk in the room, and like I said, it's it's kind of nebulous and it's hard to quantify. But like, they have to be dynamic, right? Because you're almost like on stage every single day. So like, you can't you can't bring your baggage into the classroom because if you're having a bad day, your kids aren't going to learn anything, right? So you have to be kind of dynamic. You have, there's a, there's an element of, of, um, entertainment to it, right? You have to be kind of on all the time. And when you're not on, I, I tell them like, Hey guys, I'm, I'm having an off day. Like this is, you know, I'm not feeling it. I don't need to tell you why just giving you a heads up. Right. And they, those days don't happen very often, but when they do, I just tell them. And then they have the grace to like understand it. Cause they have days like that too. But, um, you know it. You know when it when it's when a student teacher has that kind of it factor, and then when they just kind of don't, and they don't, they aren't dynamic, and they aren't keeping the kids' attention. And one of the biggest parts of it is the energy, and they they care about kids. Like you would be surprised how many people are in education that don't like kids. Like they they just don't give a shit about students. I would not be students. surprised, but I think we've all seen those teachers. Yeah, like you. Number one, you have to care about kids right? You have to care about their livelihood. You have to like, 
be willing to address the whole person, not just the kid that's sitting in that stool. I think that's the biggest thing. And, and, and like, you can't teach that. Like you can, you can mold a student teacher who like cares a lot, you know, that, 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 that one you can help. Right. All right. We just got to work on a few things. So I got to work on presentation, got to work on classroom management, got to work on your withitness, right? And know what's going on around you. But the, the, the teacher, the, the student teacher that comes in is just like, I'm here because we get the summers off. Like, not that they would say that, but you can kind of feel it. That teacher is not one that's going to be long for the classroom. So well, it's like the doctors who are in it for the money. Like, oh, that's not going to go well for you. No, no, no. Except yeah. for that doctors actually make money. But not not to the point that they no that they used no, no, no. To. but 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 you actually make some money whereas like teachers have to deal with children who are unruly generally there's no authority with children and they don't make any money and so there's like what your two and a half months of summer is you're like the reason that you mm-hmm. went into teaching yeah. right like I'll be quite honest with you like if my if my kids want to be teachers I am going to like. I'm going to grill them on it. Like, Hey, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? Because it's become, um, it's become a difficult profession and, uh, it's no longer that like you, you get like, like the support from home. Like it it used to be like, Oh, you, so you did this in class. Like there's, there's consequences. Now it's so often like it's the teacher's fault no matter what. And then, you're put in tough positions and you're no longer an authority on curriculum. Right. And you have to carry a gun. D- that's a whole, that's a whole different thing, right? That we could do two more hours. Yeah. We that. could do a whole nother, maybe we will. Yeah. I would be open to that. Cause that's, that's, um, that's a whole other thing, but they're putting cameras in schools in like Iowa and Indiana. Right. Like, um, which I wouldn't find film me. I don't care. I don't, I, I do what I do. Like I tell my administrators come in whenever you want parents trying to dictate curriculum irks me like crazy well and that's one thing to be like put a camera in my classroom if you're concerned that i am not doing something right that i'm being negligent right or like it's a it's a supervision tool or something but it's a whole other thing if you're putting a camera in my classroom so some parent can watch what i'm teaching and then come at me and be like i don't want you to teach that yeah. Well, everything I teach is in the, is in the standards. I, everything I can defend every single thing that I teach. Um, it's when it's now we've got, we've got crazies infiltrating school boards and like, mm-hmm. it's it, our, our school board election in the fall is going to be crazy because we changed our mascot away from the Indians. Oh, you did. Oh, good Lord. Well, yes, good. We, we've been the Indians for, well, you want to know what we were before the Indians? Was it Indians? Yes, we were the engines, I-N-J, oh. not like the room room engines, but like the I-N-J-U-N engines. Yeah. I-N-J-U-N. Like the very yeah. racist way of saying the racist thing of Indian. Yeah. So when I, when I started teaching there, we were the engines. Like they were that until like Ooh. 2006, maybe seven. And again, this is not the backwaters of the South. This is a very affluent Chicago suburb. Yeah. Yeah, so we are we don't have a mascot currently, but the people who were very um, vocal about tradition and you can I'm sure you can picture those people, like they're they're coming out in force for this next school board. It's going yeah, to wow, wow. But that's a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
and you kind of led us right into it about talking, you know, when you said, well, if my kids ever wanted to go teach, I would really want to know, like, do you really want to do this? Blah, blah, blah. Like, what would you want? Like, if you could snap your fingers and make everything be exactly how you'd want it to be, what would it look like? Like, what is it? I think so often a lot, a lot, I'm going to guess a lot of our listeners are in more affluent places, mostly because I think most of our listeners know us or they've been introduced to our podcast by someone who knows us, right? So there's a little bit of a spread issue where it's like, oh, hey, my friend does this podcast and you should listen to it. So it's maybe it's not affluence, but it's like like-mindedness, right? And so we, we tend, our listenership tends to approach stuff the same way. Of course, you'd want to teach science. Of course, you'd want open inquiry. Of course, you know, blah, 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 blah. But can you walk us through sort of like, what's the reality right now in, even in affluent school districts, you, you know, you kind of touched on a little bit, where are the pressure points for teachers and administrators versus like what, if you could have it be any way you wanted it to be, what would it look like? So yeah, like good question. I um, I think ultimately, I think you just want to be respected as a professional, right? Ultimately, you want to be trusted and respected that I am making the right curricular decisions to teach your children in a way that they're going to learn best. You know, you don't need to go parsing through the library for books that have questionable content maybe it talks about rape and, and or you know what i'm saying like i feel like so much of what we do is is nitpicked but you go to a doctor and they tell you you need to take this medicine for your high blood pressure and you take the medicine right because they're a professional like we too have gone to school we have multiple i have two masters right like so many of our teachers have higher education. You've gone to school. I've gone to school as long as I, it turns out being as long as a doctor, right? <laughs> Maybe right. almost, I don't know. But um, we know what we're doing, right? But, but we don't get that respect as a professional educator. Like you and trust. Yeah. Like that's, I think that's the biggest detractor for me when I see someone going into education, I'm like, man, you sure you want to do this? Like, because there is that idea that there's people getting on school boards that have no educational background whatsoever, and they are going to be dictating educational policy and the things that I can and can't teach when this guy has no idea what he's talking about. And I don't know anywhere else on a board where you're dictating how people are doing their jobs like fundamentally day-to-day what is best for kids is not going to be what we're going to end up doing i'm scared that they're going to get people in there that like you know just fundamentally are changing all this stuff so that's that's the thing that irks me the most and um that's that's why i would kind of steer my kids in another direction i think you spoke about leaving the last school year with a little with an air of pessimism is that where that that pessimism is coming from for you yeah yeah for sure is the it's the politics not not yes. the kids not the content no not- no the kids are great the kids the kids are great our my students are are phenomenal i love our students they're like it's not them at all you know i love teaching it's it's the periphery that like you know kind of eats at you 
there's only so many times when you your professionalism is questioned and mm-hmm. it's i'm not talking about me directly like no one's i don't i'm not getting parent emails complaining about stuff that i teach it's just the news it's it's the noise that like you know kind of surrounds you as you know, when we're in these like news cycles that are spinning you know every 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 day that you just can't get away from it so well and that like loops us back to what you were saying at the very beginning which is you know scientific literacy and understanding the basics of science it's one thing if some random parent gets onto a school board but understands how to assess read like read the studies and assess the evidence on one side or the other and make sort of a balanced decision as opposed to being like, these are my politics and I'm just going forward and I don't really care. And I don't even care to understand. Yes, exactly. Right. It's not that I don't under, I don't care what you have to say. It's like, I don't even care to understand why it's X or Y way. That is why it's so important, right? It is one thing to be like, everyone understands the baseline here. And yet we decide that we're going to do this because that's what we believe, or these are our politics or whatever. But when people just get involved and they have no idea what they're talking about, the world now is like that. At least the United States is like that, which is like, you don't even know what you're talking about. Right, right. There, I mean, there are such things as authorities on on, on everything, <laughs> right? Right. And, and so those authorities' opinions matter more than yours because you are not an authority on that thing. And when Twitter creates an even playing field for all of these different opinions like it's it's just it's a slippery slope and I, i'm feeling the weight of that i was definitely feeling it at the end of last year i really needed i really needed a break um, you needed your summer off yes i needed that summer off for sure. yeah 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 i i mean i can totally appreciate that and i think you know we talked to our eighth grade teacher my eighth grade teacher coaches you know academic bowl and math teacher from St. Stephen's and in Streeter. You know, we talked about the difference between what it was, te- what it was like teaching 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and what it's like teaching now. And how many, how many more restrictions are on teachers for sure. Some of which are good, right? The sort of unbridled teachers can do whatever they want in the classroom and lay hands on students and all kinds of things. Okay. That's not happening. And the, and the importance of understanding you know, that teachers understand, like, hey, some kids have learning disabilities. They're not just stupid, you know, or some, some kids come to school abused or hungry and they're not just like distracted and idiots. Like, like there was a lot of personal responsibility stuff when we were kids. Like, well, if you're not figuring this out, you're either stupid or you don't care and you're a problem. Um, And that's great. But she also talked about how there are more, like you said, there are more and more restrictions from people who don't understand education saying what education should be like. And then you layer in parents who are helicoptering around their kids. And they're like, you know, when we were kids, certainly in our household, and I'm sure it's like that in your household too. If you brought home a bad grade on a test, it was very much like, what did you do to get a bad grade? Right. Instead, now it's like the parents go, why did you give my kid a bad grade? Right, right. Um, And so parents, teachers are dealing with sort of individual parental pressure and then school district pressure and and state curriculum pressure and then sort of overall politics pressure. 
um, which delegitimizes them at every level of the game. It's hard to be effective when everyone's like, you know, and how quickly we went from March of 2020 when everyone's effing kids were at home. We're like, oh my God, teachers deserve $10 billion a year <laughs> to where we are two years later. It was a quick, it was a right. quick turnaround. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think you said something that, that I've heard before, but it's very true. It's like, there are, there's such a thing as an authority and their opinions matter more than yours. But what we cannot forget is that teachers are an authority on teaching and education. Yeah, yeah for sure. For the most part, there's always going to be that one person who hates kids, blah, 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 blah. But for the most part, their opinions on how to teach your children are more important and effective and impactful than yours. Yeah, 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 for sure. Like we, we spend time on our craft, like legitimately, like we spend time talking to each other about rubrics, about how to evaluate about what we should be looking for and example our pieces of, of, of work that gets turned in. Like it, it's not just grab assery around the, around the, uh, in the teacher's lounge, right? Like we actually talk about the science of teaching and the science of learning. And I wish parents were in on these conversations. That's where the camera should be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Also grab assery is one of the best <laughs> words of all time. I'm so good. It's like part of my lexicon now. Let's do it. It's, which, which brings me to saying like, it's going to become part of my family, which yeah. we're about to get to here. So we get to ask, I get to ask the penultimate question. Kosha always gets to add, ask the fun stuff, but she's also like the sideshow here. She's like, yeah. Hey, do you want, you want a treat? So, um, and I get yes. to ask yes. the tough, tough questions. But I say the funny thing. <laughs> you know, you talked a lot about how tough it is to be a teacher now and it's not you know just the layers of how challenging it is and and imagine your kids in 15 years said you know what I want to be an educator I want to go into teaching what would you tell them like what would be how would you walk them through that or what would you ask them to think about as they try to make that decision I that's a really hard question um it's good to think about it now because one of your kids may come back and be like, I'm a teacher. This yes. is practice. And then you can yeah. listen to this podcast and be like, what did I say I was going to say? Then? Yes. Go back <laughs> to this one. Oh, uh, yeah. So cue this one up when uh, when I need it, please. Um, and it's going to sound really, really cliche, but you have to be able to to find passion, obviously, in what you're doing. And you have to, to know that you're going to enjoy every day. And it, there's going to be days that aren't as enjoyable as the other, but you want to go into work knowing that you're doing something meaningful um, and for the right reasons, right? So I, I went into education with a, with a passion for science, right? I had, I had been focused on medicine my entire life, basically. I wanted to be a vet and then a doctor. I wasn't quite sure what I was getting into, like why I was really doing it. I didn't have the I just knew that I knew I knew science and I knew how to explain it and I knew how biology works. But I found myself in it for literally for the kids. Initially, I thought, well, maybe you'll be a principal someday. Maybe you'll be an assistant principal. Maybe you'll move up. And when when Kosha told me that we always you, you ask about advice, one of the big things in that frame of reference was like, don't always be looking for the next best thing because I felt like 
I felt like in education, I was always looking for the next thing, right? What's the next thing I could be doing? What's the next thing I could be doing? Um, and not realizing that like, I really love what I do, right? I, I went to, to school to learn science and now to teach it. And I, I was always thinking, all right, so, but, but what, what, what could I do next? And so when the department chairmanship opened up, I, I interviewed for it and I got it and I did it for four years and I, I did some good things, I think, but I, I didn't like it. I did not, I didn't enjoy it. I, I didn't go to school to do that. I went to school to, to, to teach kids and help kids. I realized that you don't always need to be looking for the next best thing. Do what you are, do what you love, do it well, and the opportunities will come. That's what I truly I had found before I went into the department chair. Like, I was doing what I loved. I think I was doing it well. And I was was getting opportunities like Big History Project. I was I was on a research ship in the middle of the Pacific. We were with one of the leading scientists in the in the entire world, um, Ballard, right? Bob Ballard, his ship found the Titanic, right? I was sitting next to him and and, and we were talking science and we were looking at caves that were thirty thousand years old under the under the ocean. So so if you're doing what you love, if you're doing it with passion, if you're doing it the best of your ability, opportunities will come to you. You don't need to be out seeking the next cool thing to do. Good advice. It's good advice for us all, as Kosha says. But I mean, I, I will say it is good advice for all of us because what you're saying is you don't have to be looking at the next rung of the ladder. Right, right, right. You know, amb- ambition doesn't necessarily mean being a bigger fish in a in a pond it can mean being better at what you do right you can you can be ambitious to be the best ap bio teacher in the whole goddamn country i think it's absolutely true it's it shows up a lot in business as kosha will probably attest to which is people who are really great salespeople suck as managers because that's not where their skill is. That's not where their passion is, right? And so it's, I think it's a, similar in a lot of situations. People who are fantastic teachers kind of suck as administrators because they didn't get into teaching so that they could be an administrator. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I, I was middle management for four years and I hated it. Like that's, that's not what I went to school for and that's not what I love. And so I, I stepped down. And there are people who love being department chairs and principals and things like that so like those people should be in those jobs and they were probably shitty teachers right like my high school math teacher should have been like a department yes yeah yeah or data analyst or something yeah right actually she should not be in a school (laughs) at all but that is very good advice and and ashley she said we have a lot of people who say um this is really cliche or it seems really simple again i i say this a lot but we need to go back to like Sesame Street ethics and Sesame Street lessons where like you can see Elmo saying like just do what you love and love what you do like do that well so yeah I mean I think I think that these are important that's important advice uh not just for your kids in 15 years but um just for people looking to go into education now or anything else so yeah Yeah. I uh, love your word grab grab assery I'm gonna use it forever it is now part of my family um and 
because you offered some FAMLACT of yours. I don't know. Do you use that word often, grandmastery? Not that often. No, that just kind of came out. You need to use it more often. I will. Absolutely. I'll try to. Um, can you give us some examples of your own FAMLACT? So before I, I give you some, I, there was another piece of advice that I thought was super important, but it has to do with family. Yeah. And, and not... Um, and not work. And it was the other day I was sitting around and I was really missing my grandparents. And I was thinking, man, people need to spend more time with their grandparents. So that's my other piece of advice is spend more time with your grandparents. That's lovely and amazing. So Shayla, she and I have very different experience with our grandparents than a lot of people. We would go see our grandparents once a year. People are like, oh my God, you went to India every year. How was that? Like you must have eaten the food and the colors and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, we really sat in my grandparents' flat with the blinds closed because it was hot as fuck and played cards with each other because really we were there. There was a language barrier. Kids were, you know, seen, not heard, that kind of thing. But now I see our kids have a relationship with my parents or Brian's parents. And I'm like, Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. this is what we missed this. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, it was no one's fault. I'm, you know, I mean, in therapy, I blame everybody else, but <laughs> of course we were a result of our time and, and our, our experience. But uh, I get that now that I see a new, or I see bats with my parents and just the joy that she has. I never lit up like that when I saw my grandparents. Yeah. Well, yeah. why would you? I mean, why right. would we? Because we would go there and we'd sit in their house for two or three months. I think that the you know, as as we're seeing our kids with our parents, is that the joy of that connection is in the small, mm-hmm. is in the everyday, the easy stuff. Yeah, it's I came over and I brought you cookies, or mom says we're not going to have ice cream, but we're going to have ice cream anyway. Those like little, those little moments that actually amount to nothing on the grand scheme of things but when accumulated that's the relationship it's in the small the daily the ongoing um and our relationship with with our grandparents was grand yeah big swaths of things but empty yeah yeah only because of circumstance i don't think our grandparents loved us any less but we have cousins that actually grew up in the house with them they have very, very fond memories of our grandparents. Of course they would, Yeah, yeah. you know, and we don't have that, but I think spend time with the people you love and who love you and that like you have a deep connection to, right? I think as, a, as we have one living grandparent and like to spend time with that person and to like find that connection there is important. So, yeah, yeah. No, I thought that was, just want to throw that in. Okay, now talk to us about your FAMLACT. FAMLACT. Give us some, you know, words, phrases, invented things that um, come within your family that means something to you and someone else would be like, what the hell are you saying? So a couple of these, I, I wrote four things down. A couple of them come from Grayson, from like Tabo speak. Talk. Oh, I love yeah. this. And then the other come from my sister, who my sister has like her own language. Oh. <laughs> We will already have heard Amanda when this airs. Amanda is changing the world. She's doing some incredible things. So 
Grayson used to, he couldn't say that he recognized, oh, I recognize that. But he couldn't say recognize, but he said a word that it was, was even harder to say than recognize, which is renecarize. Oh, my God. So he would say, oh, I renecarize that. So he, he, he further complicated recognize and said renecarize. So Christine and I, whenever we, oh, oh yeah, I renecarize that person. Oh, my God, that's good. We don't even like realize like the right. you say. Oh, you don't renec. Oh, sorry, recognize. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Renecarize. You just say it, and you both know exactly what that means. Yes. Does Grayson yes. still say it? He still says it, but as a, in a joking way now. Yeah. He knows how to say recognize as a love. Yeah, girl. that's good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then if something makes you mad, it's mattifying. Oh. Yes, it it's, is. It's mattifying. It's super mattifying. Um, if it makes you mad. Um, and then my sister has a, if she, if you put SCH in front of anything. Like schedule? No, SCH or SCH. Like, like S or S. And so like sisters became schmisters. Oh. I don't know why schmisters. Oh, that's her. Like, that's her language. She puts like schmurs in front of different things. And then. Finally, um, this this has a stem from what's the the Mike Myers um, spy, the Austin British Powers. spy, Austin, Austin Powers. Powers, when he would say something was toit, like well, this toit. Toit. So we were watching uh, like a uh, HGTV show where they were like building something, and apparently there's a a Dutch. You can look this up. I think it's a Dutch stool. Okay. And it's called a stoit. <laughs> that sounds very Dutch. S-C-H-T-O-I-T, stoit. So if something's cool, <laughs> it's stoit. Right. Not just toit. Not toit. Which is a Dutch stool. So the entomology is, is like Mike Myers meets Dutch stool. <laughs> or like Antiques Roadshow meets Hollywood movie meets Amanda. Awesome. So if we're in like a spelling bee and they ask for the, what's the, is it entomology? Yes, yes, oh, yes. Uh, you know, it's it's a uh, spy who shagged me meets <laughs> um, HDTV Dutch um, stool. Stoit. Oh my God, that's awesome. That's really good. <laughs> Mattifying. The one of my favorite new uh, family from that has just happened is Anushka was reading a book. Oh my God, she's going to kill you. I love it. I don't care. So Anushka is reading a book about Rosa Parks. And so she's reading and she's like, um, you know, and then this happened in um, uh, Montagrami. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, where? And she goes, it's where the bus boycott is, is Montagrami, Alabama. <laughs> and I said, it's actually M- Montgomery, Alabama. Montagrami. Montagrami. And then she goes, this is this is the part that's, that's awesome. I love her so much for this. Because I said it's actually Montgomery. Now most seven-year-olds would go, oh, oh, I got that wrong. It's Montgomery. She looked at me and she goes, I'm gonna call it Montagrami. <laughs> Fair enough. And I go, now we all are. <laughs> Let's take a field trip to Montagrami. If it's yeah. not wrong, if I insist it's not wrong. Exactly, right? There's a set of facts for different people. Yes, that's right. <laughs> We do not want to say. <laughs> Kosha says, and it's probably true. My personality is very much to say my opinion like it's a fact. And I'm so em- emphatic 
And I said, just sounds so confident that people are like, she must know what she's talking about. That must be right. Because she's like, how much stuff do you think you've gotten away with? And I was like, I don't probably so much because I'm just like, we should go that way. And everyone's like, all right. She sounds like she knows where she's going. Montag- well, I'm just going to call it Montagravi. As a kid, as you're coming across a word, even as an adult, if you're coming across a word you've never seen, you'll sound it out. But she yeah. saw the M, the T, the G, and the Y. <laughs> There's an R and an O through, through a couple R's and O's in there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I might get it right. Like, it might be Montagravi. And now it is. Just say it with conviction. Well, yes, exactly. If you say it like you know what you're talking about, everyone's like, she must know what yeah. she's talking about. Sounds right. It was so great to talk to you, Scott. You guys too. Scotty, you were so fantastic. Thank you. This was fun. This was Thank a blast. You. And you definitely are an authority on on what you're doing. No, I appreciate that. The science literacy needs to start yes. friggin' early. So Indeed. yeah, we love you. We'll talk to you soon. Love you too. Bye. All right. Bye. This was a blast.